your Bibles, go to John chapter 5. We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of John. We began, um, oh, a few weeks ago, and we are going to be, we're walking through John from the very beginning to the very end. And um, in that, what we're seeing is that John is making a case. He is uh, writing to us so that we would know who uh, Jesus is. He begins the, the gospel in the very first chapter, in the very first words, to say that the Word um, was with God, and the Word was God, and uh, nothing that was created was created apart from the Word of God. And then he'll go on and tell us 14 verses later that it is this Word that was made flesh and dwells among us. And thus introducing to us Jesus, who he will call the light of the world and the light of life and the one whom uh, came into the world to show us who God is and what God does to bring us into relationship with him, to, to repair what has been damaged, to restore what has been lost, to bring to life what was dead. And so that's been John's case. And here in John chapter 5 this morning, we're going to see that this is actually the statements that Jesus make here um, almost find no parallel in the Bible. That what Jesus will say about himself here is, is meant as a reader to startle us is meant as the reader to confront us with what do we believe? Who do we believe that Jesus is? And John gives us no room out this morning. Well, I'll begin this way at the end of C.S. Lewis's um, Chronicles of Narnia in the last book, uh, The Last Battle. It's on the last page, and there is Aslan, who's the lion, the, the Christ figure in the story, and he's talking with Peter and Edmund and Lucy. And Peter and Edmund and Lucy, they have died in a railway accident and they don't know it. And so they're standing there before Aslan. And as he spoke, Lewis writes, Aslan no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can mostly, truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover, the, the, the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story. Which nobody on earth has ever read and which goes on forever and ever, and which every chapter is better than the one before it. And the same is true for us. John, the gospel writer, is telling us. Jesus is telling us. The same is true for all of us if we believe in Christ as our Savior. And, and we'll see that the authority of the voice of, of Jesus calls forth new life. And that authority does that even now so that the chapter begins here on 
earth. Jesus has made this claim and he speaks this truth. And in John chapter 5 is one of the places we most clearly see that. So I want to begin reading. I'm going to begin reading in verse 18. And I'll read down to um, verse 30. And then we'll talk about that and then look at the rest of the, of the chapter. Here, here's how John records it. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raised, raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He's granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He's given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. And those who have done good to resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Well, that's, that's the word of the Lord. I pray that God would bless the reading of it. Well, what happens is at the beginning of chapter 5, we looked at it last week, Jesus is going to heal a man who's been invalid for 38 years. So he heals this man, and then the man, he tells the man to pick up his mat and to walk. And it happens to be the Sabbath, so the man picks up his mat, he walks, and then he gets harassed by the Jewish leaders because he's breaking the Sabbath. He's picking up a mat. You're not supposed to pick up a mat. He's walking with the mat. That's bad. It's, it's, very, it's a very bad Sabbath thing to do. So they question him, and the guy um, throws Jesus under the bus and says, well, I, listen, this guy healed me, and he told me to do this. And they said, well, who is the guy? And he said, well, I didn't, actually didn't find out his name. So later, Jesus finds him, uh, uh, has a conversation with him. He discovers Jesus' name, so that he runs back to the Jews. He tells on Jesus, and that Jesus is the name. The Jewish leaders come to Jesus, and they say, who in the world do you think, what right do you think you have to lead people astray in breaking the Sabbath? And so now what John's doing is he's recording the response from the Jews. And the, and the Jews are said here in, uh, it says in verse 16, that they began to persecute him, harass him, uh, interrogate him. 
And so Jesus, it's interesting, instead of Jesus saying, well, hey, listen, I, I don't know, it's, it's just me, but you might have missed the point here. The guy was an invalid for 38 years, and he's not an invalid anymore. And it's kind of cool that he can actually pick up his mat, don't you think? But they would hear none of that anyway. And so Jesus, instead of trying to uh, calm them down about the Sabbath, he is going to make some statements that will cause the Jews to absolutely, absolutely lose their minds. They will go from persecuting him to plotting to kill him. And the reason they do that is because what he said in, in verse 17 is that my father's working until now, and I am working. And so on the surface, we hear that. And we think, well, okay. Um, but Jesus, I mean, he could have meant any father, right? I mean, he could have meant Joseph. He didn't, but he could have. Been. I mean, what is it about that statement that caused the Jews to, to absolutely um, move into these, these murderous actions that they'll take against Jesus. And the answer is, John gives us in verse 18, is that in Jesus saying that, what he is saying is that he is equal with God. So, there was a debate that had been going on uh, for a long time in Jewish circles in that day. And the debate was whether or not God keeps the law. And, the, you know, does he um, or doesn't he? Is, is God obligated to keep his own law that he gave? Or, or is he not obligated to it? And so the Jews, uh, for whatever reason, they felt that was very important. And so they, they would debate this. And so, by and large, the Jews felt like God did keep the law. But the sticking point was the Sabbath. And, and the reason is, is because if God rested on the Sabbath, that would be bad for planet Earth. Because now who holds all things together? And who's going to give us life and breath and those sorts of things? And so, of the 39 Sabbath laws that they had, they concluded that the 39th law that said... Um, you cannot carry anything outside of your house. So at Sabbath, you can carry stuff around your house. You can move it from the, you know, from the, the, uh, the stove to the um, table. You, you can do that in your house. You cannot do it outside of your house. And so what the Jews concluded is that God was not obligated to the 39th law of the Sabbath, to which I am sure... God was very relieved to hear uh, that they'd given him a pass on that. But how they concluded it is, is they got around it by saying, well, look, God's bigger than the universe. And so if the earth is in the universe, um, then this is inside of God's house, and he can do whatever he wants inside of his house. Um, so, thrilled. But when Jesus says, my father works on the Sabbath, and so do I, that's what he's speaking to. That's what they hear. And they hear him saying he is equal with God. In fact, what Jesus is saying is that my father is God. And that I, by virtue of being my father's son, I have all the same prerogatives. I am just like he is. So here's two words uh, that 
that you should know. I'm going to give you two kind of theological words, and then I'm going to try to unpack them. Um, actually, it'll end up being three words. But the first two words are this. The first word's ontology. Okay? Not oncology, but ontology. The second word is monotheism. I'll start with monotheism. Monotheism says that there is only one God, and He has no equal. And this is very important. This is what the Jews believed. This is the uh, message of the Old Testament. There, uh, there is not a pantheon of gods. There is not, creation is not God. You know, you can't just say, well, you worship the sun, and I worship the moon, and they're both in the sky, and so we're okay. There, God is, as He's presented by the Jews, the one only true God. We read that this morning in Deuteronomy 6 when we were dedicating the children. There is only one God, monotheism. In fact, there are four people in the Old Testament that made claims about themselves being God. Pharaoh did, Nebuchadnezzar did, um, there was a king named Hiram of Tyre, he did. There's even a, a Jewish king named Joash who claimed uh, God-like status. And, it, and I can just tell you from the accounts, they did not go well for them. That there is no other God. And so, when John, the gospel writer here, is recording that Jesus is equal to God, and as Jesus makes these claims and then provides the witnesses for it, Jesus is saying, he's, he's affirming, listen, God is one, and when you see the Son, you've seen God, and He makes God known because He is God, but He is not claiming, I am another God. He's not saying, look, okay, well, God is God, and I am God, and so now there's two gods. That is not what he is saying. Equality here means he does what God does. He is of the same nature, in essence, that God is. And so there are six claims that he's going to make about himself in these verses. The first one is, is that I'm equal with God. The second one is I am the giver of life. The third one is that I am the final judge. Then he'll go on and say, I determined the human and the, I determined the eternal destiny for humanity. I will raise the dead. And I'm always doing the will of God. John the Gospel writer is making these same claims. He begins in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then 14 verses later, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In John 8, we'll see in a couple of weeks, Jesus will say, well, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. Jesus will say to Thomas in chapter 14, don't you know that he who has seen me has seen the Father? And then we'll see at the end, Thomas's confession where he says to Jesus, my Lord, my God. That's monotheism. Now, ontology, or maybe better, ontological trinity, as opposed to what we would, or as distinguished from what we would call economic trinity. So I know you're thinking, wow, I didn't even, I didn't know these words. I didn't know I needed to know these words. Ontological trinity, economic trinity. Let me explain it to you. The ontological trinity refers to the being, the nature, the essence, the attributes of each person of the Trinity, and they are all equal. 
God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. They are all the same essence, all the same attributes, all the same holiness in their nature, in their character. They are exactly the same. They are one. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share the same divine nature. And so we say the Trinity is ontological. There is equality amongst them and their power and glory and wisdom. And when we talk about the ontology of the Trinity, we are talking about who God is. The co-equal nature of God. But then we also talk about not only who God is. That's important. In fact, the whole Old Testament is dedicated to who God is. We also talk about what God does or how God does. And the focus here is what we would call the economy of the Trinity. What are the roles of each person of the one true God? So, when you say the Trinity, and so the Trinity is one of the eight essential doctrines we believe here at Bethel. We, you know, to be a member at Bethel, you've got to hold to the doctrines, and the Trinity is one of them. And so, I'll, I'll tell you, this is what we believe about the Trinity, and I will also say, we believe the Trinity wholeheartedly, and we do not anywhere come close to fully, fully understanding the Trinity. In fact, I think it'll take more than a lifetime. In fact, I think it'll take more than eternity to fully understand the Trinity. But it is the image of God we were created in, and so we feel those longings. The Trinity is this, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit share one nature. They are one. And they are distinct and different persons and have different roles. Unity and distinctiveness. God is one. God is three. And so how this works out in the economy of the Trinity, you might think about it this way. The, um, the, the eternal plan of salvation flows from the, uh, the will and the power and the love of the Father. You find that out in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And salvation is accomplished by now the work of the Son in His death and His resurrection. And then the the, the work of salvation is applied by the Spirit and regeneration and sealing us. And so each person of the one God has a role. You might listen to uh, Paul as he writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Maybe one of the clearest statements that help us. He says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In Paul's mind, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was clear. And so, Jesus here is explaining to these Jews that He is God, He is the Son, and He's going to give these four um, uh, statements, and they all begin with the, with the word, the little preposition for, F-O-R. And the first one's in verse 19, and he begins, Jesus begins with this sort of double amen, or verily, verily, or truly, truly. It's true. 
It's true, and he's claiming this equality with God, calling himself the Son of God, referring to God as his Father. And, you know, while the Son and the Father are distinct, they are the same God. The Son is the perfect revelation of the Father here on earth in human form. Everything he does reflects the intentions and actions of the Father. In verse 2, you see that the Father shows the Son all that He does because of His love for Him. There, are, there is no competition. You know, it's not as though God the Father said, well, listen, man, I've been doing this for, I've been doing this the whole Old Testament. Let's see how you can do in the New Testament. That's not how that goes. As He sends His Son, He sends His Son in His will. Jesus' will is aligned with the will of the Father, and this is the case because of their love. In verse 21, you see the third uh, clausal state, the third um, F-O-R up here there. And this is how the Son does all that the Father does. Because only God can give life, bring about life. And not only that, bring about life and to overturn death. But in order to be able to give life, you must be the source of life. This isn't just fixing what's broken. It is more than healing what is sick. To give life means that you can bring something into being when there was nothing. That where there was emptiness and where there was void, you can fill it with, with meaning and make it flourish. And only God can do that. In verse 22 and 23, you'll see the fourth of these, and that is that the Son who exercises the judgment of God, He exercises nothing other than the perfect judgment of God. In verse 23, we see the purpose is that all may honor the Son. Now, you've got to think about this for a minute. It is not, that Jesus, it's not only that Jesus broke the Sabbath and the Jews were mad about that, because they were. And now Jesus makes a claim of his equality with God and being the same as God, coming from God, having uh, the distinctness of his role as God. He is claiming, I am God, sent from God. My Father loves me, and I am his Son. And in verse 23, which means... You must honor me. You might think about it this way. Jesus is saying to the Jews, not only am I the Lord over the Sabbath, I am the Son of God. And because I am God, worship me. And if you do not worship me, you do not honor me, you do not honor God. So the Jews don't really love that. But Philippians chapter 2, Paul will say, listen, at, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the reason is this, because the Bible is absolutely clear that nothing with a beginning Nothing that had a beginning, nothing that had a point in time as the beginning, nothing that had a beginning can be worshipped. 
only that which had no beginning. The only one is, is God. And so even when John, this gospel writer, later in Revelation, or Daniel back in the Old Testament, as Daniel sees, they'll see an angel. And angels are awesome. I mean, they just are. I mean, they're, they're majestic and beautiful and powerful. And there's all inspiring feelings that come, I guess, when you stand before an angel. And so you don't feel like standing. And they, they, they went to their knees and they bowed before these angels. And the angels are like, what are you doing? You know, get up. Didn't want anybody to see. You don't worship me. I'm just a created being like you, albeit way better than you. But you, I'm, get up. You can't worship me. Only God can be worshiped. And he goes on, verses 24 to 26, he determines human destiny. He can raise the dead. We'll see him raise the dead uh, in chapter 11 with Lazarus. In him is life. And so what he's saying is that he, he is complete. He has no need of anything. And not only can he raise from the dead, he cannot be defeated by death. He is life and life in himself. And that life can never be extinguished. And then he goes on, 27 to 29. If you look, it says that Jesus, he's going to say he has the authority to judge humanity and to raise the dead. Verse 27, there is a title there, but it's actually more than a title. It's the Son of Man. Everywhere else it appears, it has a specific Greek um, construction, grammatical construction. Here, it is different than all the other places. And there's a sense in which it's more than a title. It's a title, but it's more than a title. It's, 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 it's I think, what he's saying is, listen, he has the knowledge of, of, of omniscience because he is God, but he also has the knowledge of personal experience about what a human being is. He's been tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. So what Jesus is saying, I am qualified to be the judge, not only because I am the Son of God who can give life, but I am the Son of Man who, is, who has experienced life as a human, yet without sin. And so back up in verse 25, it says, that The here and the now, the dead will hear the voice of God, and come to life. In verse 28, the dead, the, those that are in the tombs will hear his voice. He's talking about two different things. In the first instance, here's what he's saying. This is a, this is a spiritual life. It is bringing those that are spiritually dead to spiritual life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we are all dead in our trespasses. That's how we come into the world. We are dead. And the voice of Jesus, or the uh, the, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus brings life to those that are dead, spiritual life. The second instance here in 27 and 28 he's talking about, at the end when Jesus comes back physically with a word, there will be a physical bringing to life. There will be a resurrection physically. The first one you might think of as a spiritual resurrection. The second one is a physical resurrection. So the, vo the voice of the Son is powerful enough to generate spiritual life now, powerful enough to call back, call forth the dead then. But look at verse 29. Let's talk about this for one second. It says this, And come out, and those who have done good 
to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I want to be clear here. Jesus is not saying that resurrection or salvation is based upon the works that you do. This is not salvation by works, okay? I want you to see how he says this. There is a resurrection to life, and there is a resurrection to judgment. It is not different than what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when Daniel makes the claim that everyone, everyone will be resurrected, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting condemnation. So here's the way that we would say it. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, after we've been declared that we are dead in our trespasses, verse 5, but God um, shows up. And then in 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we're saved by grace through faith. This is not anything we've done so that we would ever boast about it. It is the work of God to save us by grace through faith. But then it goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the next verse And it says, but we are the workmanship of God. We're created for good works in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so that those that are believers, they step into a new life in Christ. You're born again, and you discover that under the power of the Spirit, God has, before the foundations of time, created all these good works, these good things for you to walk in, to, to live out the rest of your life like the poem that God has written for you beforehand. And if you went to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you went to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, here's what you would see. There's a place called the Bema Seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ. And it's the place where as a believer, you will be resurrected, you will be in a glorified body, you will stand before Jesus, you will give an account of the works that you did that were created for you to do from beforehand by God. Now get this, this is crazy. There are works that God created. There are works that you only could have done in the power of God's Spirit there are works that, that Jesus has done through you, and at the Bema seat, you'll be rewarded for them. And for the works that you didn't do, that which you didn't walk in, all that, everything else, and everything else you did will be burned up. In fact, it says some, some will be saved as though through fire, which means you got nothing but heaven. That's the resurrection of life to life. The resurrection to judgment is a different throne altogether. You find out about this at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians in chapter 1. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20. It is the great white throne. And is where all the dead will be resurrected physically. And then, then there will be an account for your life. And those that stand at the great white throne judgment are those that have not trusted in what Jesus has done to be saved. They have trusted in what they themselves have done to be saved. And nobody survives that judgment.
you might think about it this way. In one sense, we're all born dead, spiritually dead. And we're all born dying, physically dying. From the very first breath you take, you begin the process of dying. We're born spiritually dead to God, and we're all in the process of physically dying. And after your natural birth, there is one of two possibilities. You either experience one death and two resurrections, or you experience two deaths and one resurrection. For the believer, believers will experience one death and two resurrections. You will experience a spiritual resurrection at the moment of your salvation and a physical resurrection at the moment of Jesus' return. And in this life, you'll experience a physical death if you live, before, live and die before Jesus returns. Unbelievers, two deaths, one resurrection. There is your physical death. Then there will be physical resurrection to which you will stand before the great white throne and give an account for your life which you will not survive. And then you will be judged or as the text will say, condemned to eternal spiritual death. Two deaths, one resurrection. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm not just Lord over the Sabbath. I, I am not just the Son of God. I am God. And I have done, I have been sent to do the Father's will. I am of the same nature and the same essence as God the Father. And He loves me. He shows me all that He has done. I have been given the right, the uh, the. the uh, the throne to judge because I am not only God, but I have also lived as man. I have died for mankind. I have taken on their sin so that they might know life in me. And you will either hear my voice now, you will hear the call, you will be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, or you will find yourself at a judgment in which you will not survive. And eternal spiritual death is your future. So then what Jesus does in the rest of this chapter is he is going to call uh, five witnesses to the stand. And he's going to give these five witnesses, the first of which is God the Father, then there's John the Baptist, then there's the signs, the actual signs, miracles Jesus had been doing, and then he's going to call on the Scriptures, and then he'll call on Moses himself. And the reason he's doing that, because in 31, verse 31, there is this um, principle that he's responding to, that you come on your own testimony. It is not sufficient. You've got to come with the testimony of others. And so Jesus will pour witness after witness, testimony after testimony. Look, Look at what it says, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, And I know that that testimony that he bears about me is true. He's talking about God the Father. He'll pick that up in verses 37 and 38. And he says, hey, you sent John. You sent to John, and he bore witness about me. And then you get to um, 
verse 36, and he says, But the testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, they bear witness about me. In 37, and the Father who sent me himself bears witness about me. And then in verse 39, he says, And you search the Scriptures because you think in them you'll have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And then look at verse 45. Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, whom you've set your hope. Moses bears witness about me. God the Father does. John the Baptist does. In fact, John is the one who, as he began to proclaim the kingdom, lest anyone misunderstand. He steps out of the way. He steps into the background. Jesus steps to the front so that everyone is made sure that, listen, this kingdom is not a kingdom of selfish expectations. It, the victory of light over darkness is not a victory I'm going to win over Rome. It is a victory I will win by conquering the human heart. The sword I wield will not be a sword of steel. It'll be the sword of the Word. It'll be my very words. A steel sword has only the power to take life. My words, my words have the power to bring life. One writer said, it came to transform hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, which would then beat in perfect rhythm with the law of the God who created them. Jesus will mention his signs. His signs, they, they were never meant to be the basis of belief, but they do validate the claims that Jesus is the Messiah. The one who was written about, prophesied about, looked forward to through all the Old Testament, Jesus steps in, does one miracle after another to fulfill that prophecy. And then he says the Scriptures. The Scriptures are a valid witness because they've been there all along. But the students of Scriptures, the Jews here, the students of Scriptures up to that point, they'd been reading with the wrong lenses. See, they were reading it because they thought in this, we read this and it tells us how to achieve salvation, not receive salvation. That they'd been reading with a motive of justifying themselves rather than by faith seeking justification from God. Well, what they did was they ended up worshiping the Scriptures. They ended up worshiping the book they made, they made the Scriptures their God and did not see God at all. Now, I would say this. There are a lot of things I love about being in a Bible church. That I, I love them. But this is one where we, we must be very careful. I mean, we have a lot of pride of place, you know. I mean, you come here and say, well, you know, it's what we do. We teach the Bible. Well, most places make that claim, churches anyway. We don't want to come here and revere the Bible to the degree that we forget the God of the Bible who these words have come from. I'll give you an example. Uh, Kent Hughes, old pastor, he gives this example. He says, imagine you're standing in the observation floor of the Sears Tower in Chicago, and you're overlooking the city, and the sun's gone down in the west, and it is, you know, the lights are coming on along Lake Michigan, and you're drinking it all in, and you're caught up in what you're seeing, and then someone tugs on the back of your shirt, 
And you turn around, and you see a little man standing there next to you. And he says, my, isn't that window wonderful? And you look, and he says, oh, yeah, yeah. The way that that window is tinted and how it's set in the frame. Have you ever seen anything like it? So then he pulls out a pocket knife and he begins to scrape on the window and collects the little particles of the window. And he says, hey, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that back to my lab. I'm going to examine it. Give me your number and I'll call you as soon as I can tell you what the window's made out of. Hughes goes on to say, listen, at the very least, you would think the man was strange. But you'd realize he'd missed the whole purpose of the window, right? The window was created to, be, to, to, to show the great beauty of the city, not to be admired in and of itself. That the Bible is, an, is not an end in itself. It is a window through which we can learn and see and experience all the marvelous truths about who God is. And, and not just about God but that we would know God through His living and active Word. Well, they revered Moses, Jesus will go on to say, but they did not believe Moses. Their hearts, their wills were hardened to believe that when Moses said, hey, there's a greater prophet coming, than me, and then Jesus shows up, they would deny this prophet that Moses spoke about. You see, it wasn't that they were unable to believe Jesus, they were unwilling to believe Jesus. Their pride was greater than their sense of need. To them, the knowledge of Scripture recorded, it was sufficient. All I needed to do was to know this. All I needed to do was to have read the words. All I needed to do was to have the words on the page pass through my eyes, and I collect a bunch of trivia. But that, not, that kind of knowledge fuels your pride, and that kind of knowledge is not understanding. Here's a startling quote from Chuck Swindoll. Here's what he says. It is possible to believe in the existence of God and even accept the truth of His becoming a man in the person of Jesus, yet reject the offer of grace and suffer the penalty of sin. How is that possible? By trusting false claims of religion instead of receiving God's grace. And religion is this. It's nothing more than the attempt of humanity to gain entrance to heaven on one's own terms, primarily by achieving enough goodness through one's own efforts. Listen to what he says here. Sadly, the road to hell is jammed with Bible-toting, cross-wearing, hymn-singing, good-doing, church-going men and women who expect to be rewarded handsomely for their efforts. They trust in their own goodness, which is pride, rather than humbly admit their moral poverty and receive heaven as a gift. Startling statement. Jesus stands before the Jews, the Word made flesh. I am He. And they reject Him. 
John's whole point is to present Jesus to us so that it is clear he is not just a good man or a moral teacher or said a bunch of valuable things that if we'll follow, our life will be better. He presents Jesus as God to be heard, understood, believed, worshipped, that we'd give our life to Him. I'll end with a story about a man named Emile Roux. He was British, born in 1887, died in 1972, and he was a publisher, he was a poet, he um, was a scholar par excellence. He is the man who was the chief editor, translator, and one of the founders of Penguin Book Classics. And he's most well-known, he's, a, he's, a, he's a, one of the, at the time, he was one of the world's top scholars. And he's most known for his translation of Homer's Odyssey and Iliad. If you read that in the English language, you read Rue's translation of it. At the age of 60, he was asked by Penguin if he would do an original translation of the Gospels. What's interesting about that is that Rue, um, at age 60, had been and was at that time a lifelong agnostic, an unbeliever. Not just an agnostic, but an agnostic that was antagonistic. There's a famous interview that he did with a guy named J.B. Phillips, who also did a translation of the Bible. He did it in 1953. It was aired on the BBC. And it was after Rue's translation. And this is just a little bit of that conversation. Phillips asked him why it was that he took on the project. And Rue says, well, my personal reason for doing this was my own intense desire to satisfy myself as to the authenticity and the spiritual content of the Gospels. And if I received any new light by an intensive study of the Greek originals, to pass that on to others. So I approached them in the same spirit as I would have approached them if they'd been presented to me as recently discovered Greek manuscripts, which means he, he sought no real help from any other English translations. That's the spirit in which I undertook the task to find out new things. He said, but my, might I add a little story as you hear that? So Philip says, sure. And he says, well, my son, who is a lay reader, when he heard that his father had undertaken this tremendous task, he made a rather amusing remark. And he said this, it will be very interesting to see what my father makes of the Gospels. But it will be still more interesting to see what the Gospels make of my father. So Phillips asked him, so, so what, did you get the feeling that the whole material is like extraordinarily alive? I, I got that feeling that the whole thing was alive when I was at once translating. E even though um, I, I translated passages dozens of times, it was still living. Did you ever get that feeling? Rue says, I got the deepest feeling. A 
feeling I could not have possibly expected. And it changed me. My work changed me. And I came to the conclusion that these words bear the seal of the Son of Man, the Son of God. And they are the Magna Carta of the human spirit. Rue came to believe the claims of Christ, the, the witness, the testimony of Jesus. And one year into his translation, when he's working through the Gospel of John, He trusted Christ as his Savior, believed him to be the Son of God, the Word made flesh, believed him to be the Son of Man, the one who took on flesh and took on our sin and became the sacrifice for our sin, and who is the only way to be reconciled to God. Let me ask you, what do you do with the claims of Christ? Do you believe? I don't mean just know. I don't mean just parrot. I don't mean just have the, have the words to regurgitate back. But I mean the living, the active Word of God made flesh who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who's made a claim on your life, who is your Lord, your God. Do you know John is inviting you to know Him, to believe Him, and to trust Him with all your life. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would do what only you can do.